Hello, my name's Russell Howcroft. I've lived a lot of lives. I've been an ad man, a CEO, a chair, an author, a panelist, and I currently co-host a radio show on 3AW. And I'm partner and chief creative officer at The Sayers Group. And I'm host of this podcast. Welcome to Conversations, a Sayers podcast. Throughout my time, I've learned that so much in life starts with, yep, a good conversation. And that's what we're going to do right here today. So um, welcome to a Sayers conversation. I am, I'm really thrilled um, to be speaking to Jane Herdlicker, who's the CEO and Managing Director of Virgin Australia. Jane, it's great to see you in the, um, in the Sayers Conversation podcast studio. It's great to be here, Russell. Good on you, Jane. Um, I, I, you're busy. I know you're extremely busy. Um, but I really am keen for you just to relax into this. We want to get you into a, into a beautiful headspace where you're just relaxed and you're up for a conversation. Uh, the way we do that is we just play you some sounds. So just have a listen to some of these sounds. And then after that, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you, hey, you really, you know, which one was the most evocative? Next. Got one more. Jeez. Okay, Jane. Any of those? <laughs> what do we got? We got a fire. Maybe in a pub. By in the sea. By the sea. Mm-hmm. Where do you like having great conversations? By the sea. Yeah. So we're on a beach, maybe. So you and I are on a beach. We're under an umbrella because, as we know, the Australian sun burns. Um, we've probably got our SPF 50 on as well because, you know. It means SPF 50 when it's raining all the time. Uh, well, We're it's out it, in the rain. It is raining all the time. Look, that's actually at the end of my questions, but I want to oh, – let's get into it, into it right now. If you're running an airline, I presume you wake up every morning and the first thing you do is you go to the now infamous bomb, the Bureau of Meteorology app. I mean, is that almost like the most important thing that determines how the day is going to go? Not for me, no. No? No. So tell me, tell me then what is the most important thing for you um, on how a, uh, a, a CEO, Managing Director, Virgin Australia, what's the most important thing in any given day to give you a signal on what the, how the day is going to go? Well, I guess two things. First is to see how our head starts went. So first flight's out. Did we get them all out on time? Ah. Because if they all go out on time, then the rest of the day is much easier. Okay, fantastic. So So that's the first thing. So you call that head starts, Mm. right? Um, Staff levels? Yeah, that varies throughout the day. So it's it's head starts really. And then then I quickly, before I'm even out of bed, I'm clicking through to see what happened overnight. Is there there anything I need to know about and get involved in before I get out of bed? Okay, I love it. So So tell me... Roughly, well, no, you, in fact, you'll know precisely. How, how are your head starts running at the moment? I presume you'd have a percentage. So how are your head starts running at the moment? Exceptional. Exceptional. <laughs> Very good. I'm pleased to hear that. So an exceptional head start out of, let's say, um, mascot, that means that – is that about the, that individual aeroplane or is that actually about the entire system? So that plane, uh, that got off at 6 a.m., therefore I know it's going to be on pretty much on time for the rest of the day. Yeah, if it starts if it starts on time, then you've got much more control over the rest of the day. Right, and are you able to? This is one of the questions I, I remember asking uh, many years ago. 
Um, are you able to say, actually, no, that, that aeroplane, I, I know you're next in the queue, but I don't want you to go off next. I want the one that's three back to go off next. Are you allowed to do that? No, there's a schedule that's been designed uh, that really racks and stacks who's going first, second, and third. Yeah. And especially first thing in the day, that's all really architected to ensure that the pattern of flying for an individual aircraft is, is set off to be successful for the day. It's It's... One of the things that's always fascinated me about the airline business in that, like, I always thought that, you know, like, if I was flying, this is as a kid, if I was flying Singapore Airlines, that was the plane that was built by Singapore. But that's not really how it works, is it? It's definitely not how it works. You <laughs> don't want it to work that way either. No, so tell me, tell me why I don't want it to work that way. Because there's a learning curve in technology, uh, like most things. Mm -hmm. And so you want people who are good at building airplanes to build your airplane. Fair enough. Who have designed the technology, who understand every single component and how to build that aircraft. So it's a very safe aircraft. So what we've got in, we all know Airbus, we all know Boeing, um, of course, so they sell around the world and then people put their livery on those particular air aircraft. What else is used in the world of airlines for, for domestic um, passenger travel? So Airbus, Boeing, and is there, are there any others? No, not really. Not There's really. smaller aircraft, you know. That yeah. There's a company called Embraer who makes smaller aircraft. So they're, they're, there's a cadre of smaller aircraft manufacturers. Mm -hmm. uh, but Boeing and Airbus are the two big players. There's some Chinese carriers that are Chinese manufacturers that are kind of working to get in the game. But it's really it's really hard to knock off the history yeah. of experience that exists in Boeing and Airbus. And understandably, that history is worth a lot. Okay, so let's um, so let's talk about Boeing. Boeing's US based. Mm -hmm. um, which state is Boeing in? Washington. Um, we've got some Boeing stuff happening here in Melbourne, I think, don't we? We do. Yeah. Uh, trailing Edge is built in Melbourne and a number of other really important components. Okay, fantastic. One of Boeing's longest standing manufacturing facilities. It's it, pretty cool in Melbourne. Yeah, excellent news. Um, we like that. <laughs> well, and the, team, the team's worked really hard to make sure that they stay relevant. So it's, it's a great manufacturing story in Australia. Uh, brilliant. Okay, so America, Boeing, like we all know, it, we I think we all know America's Boeing and Boeing's American, I should say, um, and I just look at America. I just think, oh my goodness! I just, I love the place, Jane. Um, I get, I get very enthusiastic. I get an extra, extra injection of commercial enthusiasm every single time I'm there. Um, you are originally from um, where? Arkansas, Kansas, Kansas. Mm -hmm. So tell us about the, tell us about your Kansas life. Mm -hmm. It was very fun, but it was also very simple and straightforward. Um, and I'm grateful for growing up in a place where you felt safe every day and it really wasn't that complicated. Yeah. And people said what they meant and did what they said. Okay. And, and so did you stay in Kansas for your – because, of course, college life, when we, us Australians, look at American college life, it feels like that everyone leaves home mm. and goes to a different state in order that's to – That's correct. Yeah. And that like is that the vast majority of people? Yeah, vast majority. And so where did you go? So I went to Colorado College – and left Kansas and never came back. Never came back. <laughs> but that again seems to be part of the American culture in that it's far more fluid than, say, the Australian. The individuals, yeah? Yeah. And But look, the interesting thing for me was that my family also moved east. So when I was almost to graduate from Colorado College, my dad took a job in New York City. And so my parents moved to Connecticut and my brother went to Maine maybe to uh -huh. go to work for an architectural firm and 
So, like, we all flew the coop. Right. <laughs> and so, um, and then Thanksgiving is massive, right? And yeah. it, it, so, again, the picture I have of, of American family life is that sort of everyone disperses to all parts of the, um, of the United States. But then on, um, on Thanksgiving, it's like everyone's on a plane and connects. Is that true? Well, they don't really connect on the plane, but they do. But they do travel to family, right? And you know, but the roads are crazy busy, the airports are crazy busy because Thanksgiving is one holiday every American celebrates. Yeah, um, no matter your religious affiliation, everybody celebrates Thanksgiving, and it's a hugely big deal. So that so the image that I have is in fact accurate. Hmm. <laughs> okay, so um, college now post grad. Did anything happen on the post grad front for you? Well, I went to well post grad. Do you mean the first job after school or post grad education? Education, yeah. Yeah, so I went to Dartmouth College to yeah. get my MBA. Okay, and that was whilst you were still um, you'd had some professional time. Yeah, so it was interesting because when I was in my senior year in college, so doing my undergraduate study, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer, and so I was kind of gearing up to do the LSATs, which is your entrance and get exam for oh yeah LSATs for law school. I've heard about LSATs on yeah. suits. It's scary, yeah. <laughs> and then like, I had this epiphany. I don't know what caused it, but I think I had a conversation with some people who were young lawyers, and I just realized I didn't really want to be a lawyer. Okay. And thankfully, I realized that before I sat for the LSAT, before I started my uh, law school applications. But then I had this confronting moment of, well, what are you going to do? Yeah. You don't want to do that, so what do you want to do? And... And then I thought, well, I, I've gone to liberal arts college and I really want to go do post-grad study. So where am I, what am I going to do? Yeah. And landed that I wanted to get an MBA and I wanted to pursue a career in business. But I didn't really fully understand what that meant either. Mm. So I went to meet the career counselor who said to me, well, you need to go get a job because you can't even think about applying to business school until you've worked for three years. Yeah, okay. And that was pretty devastating because I really wanted to go to grad school and I wanted to go like now. straight away. Um, and I couldn't imagine like three years and then two years of your MBA. And so by the time you're done and you've finished your postgrad, you're 28 or something. Yeah, which is it's old. Like, that's ancient. <laughs> and so um, like I just really wasn't factoring as a game plan that felt right for me. And so I decided I would apply anyway because I felt like I'd done all sorts of work while I was in high school. Okay. I had part-time jobs all the way through high school. And my parents, quite rightly, like made me earn my spending money. Yeah. And so I'd cut my teeth in high school, I thought. And I had done summer jobs during college. And so I figured I could write a good essay and get myself into business school. And? And I did, with a caveat. So um, I applied to four schools, and of the four, two gave me admissions, and they said, "Go, go! You got to go work someplace for two years, and then just write us a couple paragraphs on what you learned." Uh -huh, and right. I'm pretty sure that'll be interesting, and you're good to go. Uh, so that's what you did, or you went to. So then, then I thought, okay, that's fantastic. Like I was over the moon, and I was kind of, you know, thumbing my nose at the career counselor. <laughs> Um, because now I had a plan that was a workable plan and it wasn't ambiguous. It was, it was solid. And, and, but then I thought, okay, the average, the average level of experience going into an MBA program was four and a half years at that point. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to work for two and my job for two years has to give me the experience of four to four and a half years in order to be able to compete. Okay. So you, I work 24 seven. So I worked 24-7. And, and I found a really unusual job that gave me the opportunity to really stretch myself yeah. and challenge myself. And tell, what was it? 
So I went to help a guy named Kurt Mueller, who worked for Arthur Young, build a practice. Oh, and wow. it was an entrepreneurial services practice. It was helping small businesses oh, become big businesses. It was it was high growth, you know, potential businesses. And the funny thing is that Annette uh, Kimmett, who is um, you know very successful in Australia, she knows this guy Kurt Mueller right. um, because she ran that practice. Um, as recently as four years ago. And so you started, so you were part I of the I started startup. that practice. So so I was part of the startup team. So I was like oh, employee number four. How good. So cool. And, and I, and I did get, I got probably got six years experience in two. And, and where were you living when that was happening? So in Kansas city. And so oh. I had two jobs in New York city and this one job in Kansas city and the two jobs in New York were on wall street and they were unusual jobs as well. But I just looked at them and went, the one in Kansas city, I don't want to go to Kansas city. I mm. want to go to New York. Mm bunch of my friends from college were in New York and that's really where I wanted to go yeah. but the job that was going to give me the most experience was in Kansas City so I'm, like, ah, I'm going to Kansas City so Jane have you always been in a hurry well that's probably it would probably be um you know it would probably be wrong for me to say no <laughs> I reckon so Dartmouth we, we've we've heard of Dartmouth yeah but I don't really know a lot about yeah. it so give us the give us the you know so you went to a liberal arts college. That's fascinating. I'd yep. love to learn more about that as well. But so tell us about Dartmouth. Uh, just amazing, amazing school. So it's an Ivy League school. Um, it's up in New Hampshire. So you know, there's some themes here: Colorado and New Hampshire, yep. up in the mountains. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yep. Um, on the border of Vermont. So it's pretty remote. So people who are there, like the experience that you have, is extraordinary because everybody's there, and you have this really strong sense of community. So it's a it's a college town. Mm-hmm. And so, and you're outdoors all the time. And so the people who are drawn to Dartmouth are people who are, you know, very ambitious, but also very grounded. They love the outdoors and they just, you know, like a balance of things in their lives. And it was, it was a ton of fun. Uh, another American culture question, if I may, mm-hmm. Jane. One of the things which um, I, I think many of us observe, Americans are great storytellers brilliant storytellers and they get they are enthusiastic about most things in life and are able to tell stories about it in in, in business of course i love the enthusiasm for business what makes americans i know it's a big sweeping thing but what what does make americans great storytellers i have no idea no is it something about when you're at school and are you are you asked on a regular basis to tell your tell stories in a public in a public context maybe I'm just trying to think back that far. It's a long way back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I don't think I'm wrong saying that. I, 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 think, I that think that's probably right. And I think you, you, it's a country where you're really encouraged to push yourself and right. there's, you know, the, the American dream is a statement, right? So, and you know, my, I grew up in a family where my father, you know, immigrated to the U.S., defected from the Czech Republic. You know, everybody's got an interesting story of how they came to America. Yeah. And that's part of the storytelling. And then there's, I think, so there's a, a lot of it, which is a legacy thing, keeping keeping history alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then people pursue interesting pathways. And and then you're sharing those pathways, you know, across, across people that matter to you in your life. Yeah, yeah, and love it. So, so maybe it's to do with that. M- maybe, maybe there's a difference in the way that we start our lives in school. Mm. Um, definitely show and tell. I remember show and tell, like that was a big thing and you, you had to be prepared every week to go do your show oh, and tell. I and, bet. um, and the more interesting it was, the more fun it was. So, 
Maybe, maybe that's the beginning of it. Maybe that is the beginning. So, okay, so Dartmouth. So Dartmouth was not really the beginning of the career because he'd already had some work. But then what happened after Dartmouth? So well, it was actually pretty interesting because I, I thought, okay, my MBA, that's my time to kind of figure out what do I want to do in business and, and by the end of my two years I'll have clarity on what I want to go do. But within the first two weeks you're having to write a resume and they tell you, well, your resume needs to be targeted to the industry that you want to work in, and then you're going to start interviewing in like three weeks' time. It's like for your summer job, and your summer job is really, really important because right. if you nail your summer job, then you've got a guaranteed job by the time you graduate. And so, really, in the first five weeks of your MBA program, you're staring into what I, what do I want to do with my life, <laughs> which is why I went there in the first place. Yeah. And so clearly you're not going to get the opportunity to decide that over the course of the two years. you got to figure it out in five weeks. Okay. So, so I decided that um, I had you have study groups to get you through preparations for the um, work that you need to be prepared to deliver in class the next day because mm-hmm. it's very experiential case studies and things yeah. like that. Right, right. And in my study group was an investment banker and a consultant, and two of them were telling me, you know, you should be an investment banker, you should be a consultant. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to design my resume to appeal to both, and we'll see how we go. And I was also kind of thinking maybe I wanted to go into marketing. Um, But very quickly, I got really attached to consulting because it enabled me to think through, well, I, I can actually go and learn so it'll be like post-grad, post-grad. Totally. And it'll be, I'll figure out what I want to do in life when I'm a consultant because I'm going to get exposure to all these different industries and that'll help me figure out who do I want to be. Okay, so the consultant you went to? Bain and Company. Yeah. And that happened pretty quickly. Like I, I knew basically after the first round of interviews with all the major consulting firms the f- where the fit was. Okay, so wh- um, so I've had, a, I've had a consulting experience as well, Jane. Mm. Um, so... What was your, what was the power of Bain that was attractive? People. Right, okay. But that's not, you know, like everyone's got people. Of course, but it's the nature of the people and people that you feel like you've got shared values with right. and, and you, you feel like you'll be able to be the best of yourself in that environment. Okay, and um, so tell us about, give us a highlight, a Bain highlight. Because you, you went back to Bain recently, of course, so you've got, yeah. uh, you obviously, have, there's a, a strong alumni, I, I mm. imagine, but let's let's go back in time. So, what's some you know a highlight of that experience? Well, look, it's a work hard, play hard environment, and so Perfect. that was the key. That yeah. was the key for me, right? So, I'd done that for pretty much my whole life, yeah. and so I was pretty drawn to it. People were grounded, they cared about other people, mm-hmm. and they were you know really focused on doing you know really important things, and also having a lot of fun in the process. Um, in my experience, the consultancies seem to add a huge amount of value. That's mine too, but of course I'd say that. <laughs> and I'd say that as well, right? But I think, you know, there, there, there are a handful of reasons that you use consultants. And, and I have been a consultant for half my career and I've been an executive for half my career. So I feel like I've got reasonable balance. And you, you bring in consultants because you need somebody to really stretch the thinking. You need, you need somebody who's got different skills than you have in your organization or you just need some capacity to get things yeah. done when you are – in the midst of doing something big like a major transformation or you're, you're, you're changing a big part of your management team and you need to augment skills and capability. Yeah, totally. So you're here, you're in Australia. So when did that happen? Whew, that was a long time ago. Oh, yeah, I know. So let's see, that would have happened in 93 maybe? So this is pre-family? Pre-family. Okay. Came here for a year. Oh, oh. 
okay, so come on, what happened? Well, I came here for a year <laughs> and then I was running a company and the board said, oh, you know, we're going to do these things and we really need you to stay for another two years. And so I said, okay, fine, I'll stay another two years. And then, then I'm really falling in love with Australia. Right. And I decided that uh, sometime in the future I want to go back to the US, but not yet. So I went back to Bain & Company. So I had started in Boston at Bain, left after about three and a half years, went and did some more entrepreneurial things with private equity-owned businesses, and then ended up back at Bain & Company in about 97. Huh. And that was my you know, strategy for going from smaller businesses to bigger businesses and then creating a pathway back to the US at some crazy point in the future, which so never was, happened. That was the plan? That was the plan. Okay, and then, is this when airlines took hold of you? Yeah, probably. So in 97, when I came back to Bain, Rod Eddington had become the CEO of Anset and had hired Bain and Company to help him drive the transformation of uh, Anset. Sir Rod, of course. Sir Rod. Yeah. Um, who is just an amazing person and a great leader. And, and that was my first case okay. when I came back to Bain and Company. Okay. Um, and I met Alan Joyce. That was, right. like, that was my... How did you meet him? Because it was, Alan wasn't involved with Anset. Yes, of course he was. Was he? Yeah. So he was he was my first client, and we agreed to disagree on a whole bunch of things, mm -hmm. and and then became fast friends because you know both of us realized how powerful uh, a bit of diversity is wow. in cracking really tough problems. Okay, so Anset, um, as we said off air, that uh, you and I have a share there. I, one of my great advertising experiences was that time at Anset around about the same, around about the same time actually, um, in that. You know, the advertising was, I suppose, mainstream. Like, you just stick it on the telly and something would happen. And we were fighting Qantas. It was a duopoly. And we, we started to get some market share. Mm. Um, it was pretty exciting times. Um, so what, tell us about your Ansett experience. Oh, look, Ansett was a great company. Like, it was a fantastic brand, great airline, and a lot of really amazing people. And it just lost sight of costs and yeah. needed to go through pretty major transformation. And it also kind of lost sight of its anchor from a consumer standpoint, like what is my customer strategy? Mm -hmm. And it was flying an international business that was losing a lot of money. And so really the strategy was let's anchor around the customers that we really want to build the business for mm. and run the airline for, and then work back and get cost out that doesn't align with that strategy. Do you remember when the, um, the wheel on the front of the uh, ANSET flight. It was the inaugural flight to somewhere in Asia and it came back to Sydney's mascot airport and the front wheel collapsed. That was a bad day. <laughs> and I think it was the first flight. And the uh, front page newspaper, the newspaper the next day, of course, was the, um, the ANSET airline with its nose on the tarmac. It wasn't exactly ideal, was it? No, what you want as a brand. No, no definitely and it, not. And there wasn't a lot that advertising could do to fix it. I do remember that. That was your job. Yeah, um, and I very, very foolishly, um, in a, I, I was involved in a meeting that day. It's like, what are we going to do meeting? And I very stupidly, I was young, said, um, I, think we should, I think we should build a fast train between Sydney and Melbourne. <laughs> and they all just looked at me <laughs> like... That's heresy. You, you fool. Yeah. Well, it was, I suppose it was heresy. Though, the first time I went to Europe, I got on a Lufthansa train. Um, it landed in Frankfurt and then we uh, got on a, as I say, Lufthansa and, of course, Virgin's got trains in other parts of the world. So, yeah, anyway, I'm trying to sell what was clearly a really stupid idea. 
Well, you know, it had merit, but um, it was never going to get off the ground. Never, was it? Okay, so Anset um, and then Qantas. So you, you, you well, had no, Anset. So I had I had lots of I was working across lots of industries because my thing at Bain and Company was customer strategy, and because I, I really from very early in my career I passionately believed that if you understood where you were anchoring in a marketplace, mm-hmm. who you were targeting. Mm-hmm you could build your business in a really powerful way because right. that clarity unlocks huge amounts of value. And so I was doing that across Australia, starting with Anset, and that worked beautifully for Anset. And yeah. then shareholder fight between Singapore and Air New Zealand and Air New Zealand and buying it, like that took like a year of mm. Anset's life was a, a full of distraction. So, yes. so that was a sad day for um, people who worked at Anset. But I was doing that across all sorts of industries, banking, consumer products, retail, and really, really enjoyed um, doing that. And then when Alan became CEO of Qantas, he, and I was doing work for other airlines around the world, but um, amongst other clients. But when Alan went to Qantas, he then asked me to do some work for him on yep. customer strategy. Yeah because Qantas had lost its way with customers. And okay. the NPS scores were terrible. Engineers had been striking, lots of issues with on-time performance, et cetera. And he was a new, newly minted CEO and, and wanted to change things up. So when he was CEO of Qantas, but prior to that he was Jetstar. Yeah. And, um, and then it was pretty successful really, wasn't it? Hugely. When I think about Jetstar, I think it was advertising-led success story. Is that fair? Well, look, I think I think... That's partially fair. <laughs> Most important thing about Jetstar is it came in and brought a price point to the marketplace that didn't previously exist, which brought a number of people into aviation in terms of flying that otherwise couldn't afford to fly. And so and for the introduction of Jetstar actually grew passenger travel numbers in Australia by something like 20%. What's it? Um, Magda Zabansky. Let's fly Jetstar! Magna did an unbelievable <laughs> job in getting the brand set for the future, for sure. But when Virgin launched, they they launched with an end line making the air fair. So they, they came in with a price proposition, did they not? They did, but they didn't have the same cost position that Jetstar had. Ah, I see. So the price that they could, have, they could afford was in fact higher than the price that Jetstar could afford. I like it. Yep. Now, when I think about Ansett falling over, um, you said earlier it was about the, the cost base of Ansett. And am I right, they, they had a sort of a, a mix of aircraft and that caused part of the problem? Part of the problem. I think, I think what happens if you lose clarity on who you're serving and how you're going to be successful serving those customers, you, you, you for the whole organisation, lose clarity on what, what should I spend money on and what do I yeah. not spend money on. Yeah. So it wasn't just fleet complexity, it was a whole bunch of things that had not been as tightly managed as they could have been right. over time and then a reset was required. And did the loyalty program play a role as well? Because if you remember, I'm sure you do, they were one and a half points uh, yeah. for every, and that was a differentiator, I think. Huge. Um, and so presumably that meant that they had a much higher liability. I don't know, did that contribute? No, there wasn't the main the main issue. I mean, the loyalty program was a really attractive part of, yeah. of the Ansett business. It made good money. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people that lived in Melbourne um, went on their holidays in Queensland off the back of the one and a half points yeah. in their <laughs> diners club card, right? <laughs> diners was fantastic. But diners bore the cost of the one and a half points. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, airlines is clearly, is it fair to say, it's, it's clearly it's the passion now. Yeah. But it, did, it, it, got into, it got into your executive blood? It did, but it's a funny thing because if you'd asked me at any point along my career journey, you know, did, wh- what did I want to be? I would never have said I'd want to be the CEO of an airline. Okay. 
And for many airline CEOs, they would say, really, you're in the career. Uh, like, I, I'm only going to work for airlines and okay. I want to be the CEO of an yes, airline. Yes, I've met a few of them. Yep. Yep. And so for, for me, it just it, that's something that just evolved, um, as most parts of my career did. Like, things – I never had a grand plan. It, yeah. It comes your way. It comes your – it just – it comes from the last thing that you did. If you did a good job, then the next – really interesting thing comes so, along. So we often talk about this, that there are, in most of our lives, there are sliding door moments, um, you know, in private life, of course, but also in, in our business life. So you'd be confronted with sliding door moments or, or you're confronted with a fork in the road, you've got to turn left or you've got to turn right. Making the right decision can be, you know, a lot of people can get a lot of anxiety off the back of that. So how are you when you're confronted with that left or right decision? Do you go to other people for advice or trust your gut? I know you're in a hurry, so are you just straight into it? I, I, I have strong hypotheses myself, but I do go get advice from other people and get people to play devil's advocate with me. Okay, great. Especially later in my career. Okay. Um, because the stakes are pretty high. Yeah. And so you want to make sure you're making good decisions. Yeah. So when you speak to, let's call it mentor, mentors, um, I, one of the things that I reflect on, I think, oh, yes, I've got lots of mentors uh, and a couple that are very specific, but maybe I don't actually listen to them enough. Mm. You know, are you good at listening to the mentors? Usually, there's one particular spot in my career where I didn't, uh, but um, but usually I am. Okay, uh, and so you'll you'll it'll reinforce the decision, or they'll help you m- change your mind. Well, in one case, they tried to get me to change my mind, uh-huh. and I didn't. Oh, I should have. Okay, uh, I get it. but. Um, but yeah, usually, usually it's the I I I. I specifically seek people who will challenge me okay. who will s- tell me what I don't want to hear okay and that's important to me because it's no point having mentors who actually are not really going to challenge your your thoughts and so uh, and but you have to be prepared to to listen and then to go away and think about it and it does adjust my view you went to a liberal arts college mm-hmm. which I, I I just love hearing the notion that there is a liberal arts college Tell us a little bit about how the effect that that had on you, long term. Look, I I actually think it was fundamental Mm. to me being where I am right now because I studied things that I otherwise would not have studied. Philosophy, like understanding philosophers and putting yourself through the paces really taught me how to think. Yeah. And I don't think I would have ended up at Bain & Company if I hadn't gone through some of those foundational things. I'm a naturally analytic person. But having the stretch that came from, you know, learning about the great masters, going through, you know, major philosophers and their, you know, underpinnings, in, uh, the underpinnings to their thinkings, yep. like that just really influenced me quite a lot. And then studying like the theory, the theories behind basic mathematical mm-hmm. um, patterns and 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 discoveries, like that just was really really helpful to me. I love it. And if I had picked a path and gone functional early, I would have been cut off from a lot of really fundamental development from a mental standpoint in right. terms of how I think about the world. Okay, so tell us how you think about the world. Thank you for that. So tell us about how you think about the world in the context of leadership. Well, I think there's nothing more important in any organisation from the top all the way through the organisation. And so for me... You know, living the values of our organization is super important. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the most important part of leadership is people. Um, you have to care about your people mm-hmm. and you have to believe, well, for me, talent is everything. 
and I'm only as good as the weakest link in the organization. So making sure that we're a group of people who are really capable of making a difference and we're excited about what we do every day and really passionate about doing that, uh, it's pretty fundamental. So how do you measure people? In what respect? In performance, in a performance respect, yeah. yeah. Well, there are a couple of ways to do it. Uh, for me, the selection of people is pretty first principles. Yeah. And the first most important test is, are you a good human being? Yeah. And you know the difference between right and wrong, and you really care. And once you pass that test, then it's about competency to do the job, and are you, are you going to be able to contribute? Yeah. Once you've got those amazing people inside the business, then it's about making sure that we've got objectives and key results and we're, we're working together against that and that aligns against our strategy. So if we're clear about where we're headed and then we're clear about what it's going to take to get there and we're clear about what everybody needs to do and how it all cross-connects and that fits through what we call OKRs, we, lots of companies use them, um, and we continue to adjust them, then it works beautifully and it's easy to measure how we're doing. Right. Um, you can measure it at the highest level and you can measure it at the most micro level in the organization. Yeah, I, I think um, I think for me, good leaders, good leaders love it when there's a problem. Um, they love it when there's a, you know, to use consulting language, burning platforms. Mm. Um, you've been involved, very, I mean, most recently there's been like a serious burning platform. In fact, <laughs> in fact the, it felt like the world was Raging burning. fire. Yeah, right. Um, and you had to show your leadership skill. Um, so tennis, let's, let's go there first because uh, clearly, you know, you're the chair. Um, so that must have been fascinating to be on the inside with regard to dealing with COVID and tennis. So just give us a bit of an insight into how you led. Well, the minute we saw what was coming, we battened down the hatches. And as a board, we pulled together and worked with the management team and said, okay, we need to change the way we're thinking about our business. Um, and we have no idea whether we're going to have – we're lucky we had an Australian Open in January 2020 – uh, COVID started during the Australian Open in yes. 2020. Yes. And we, we about three days in, we knew what was happening in China and we knew there was we had a bunch of Chinese players and sponsors who were on site. And so we, we started worrying about it then yep. and making sure that it didn't affect the Australian Open in 2020. Got through that, was, was our best year ever. And then the reality of what was going to unfold around the world hit and we just hunkered down as a team yeah. and went from thinking about profit and loss to managing cash and started scenario planning. Gratefully, we had made some decisions on talent just before the um, December 2019. Yep. So we had some people inside the business who really could help us change the way we ran everything and could architect really strong scenario planning that had good fact base behind it. Oh, okay, great. And so that gave us clarity pretty quickly that we needed to have an Australian Open in January of 2021 and we weren't going to get there on our own yeah. and we needed to get funding lined up. So by the time we got to April, we were clear about what our option... April 2020. April 20, yeah. April 20. Okay, so yep. we're locked down at that point in time. Yeah, we're all locked down. Yeah. And so we're doing everything by Zoom. Yeah. And we were, we were clear about what we need to try to achieve between then and January of 2021 because we – and we knew that th there was a, a huge spectrum of possible outcomes in the community between th – that we wouldn't be able to predict in terms of whether we'd be locked down, not locked down. So we had scenarios from we can run Australian Open, but it's only going to be for the camera 
to we've got an Australian Open and we're gonna have lots of people in the stands. Yeah, and no no ability to decide on our own because we're at, we have no control over whether it's going to be one or the other or or whether we're going to be in a position where we can't have any Australian Open because we can't get the players into the country. Right. Okay. Um, and we know that that's the worst case scenario that we can't get the players in the country and we can't have any Australian Open because that then is really undermining for the brand because you lose the momentum. Mm -hmm. It's bad for the community because there's no uplifting. Um, environment from the standpoint of sport being available from a content standpoint and for our people yeah. it would have been really devastating we probably would have lost a lot of amazing people and for the sport you lose the inspiration in the sport yeah and it's an important time for the community that sports playing a big role in the community and so we, we don't so the worst case scenario is we don't have players in the country and we can't have the Australian Open right such a bad scenario that we're contemplating having the Australian Open outside of Australia if we had to yes um and so we clearly understood what our possible um, outcomes were from a spectrum of different um, Australian Open uh, positions yeah. and options. Yeah. And, and, then, and then we started having conversations with really important people that would help us with funding. We got it. And, and the Victorian government were phenomenal to work mm. with through yeah. that period. So I, um, I don't – well, I certainly found, let's call it March, April, May, June of 2020 – now, I, I don't want to say the wrong thing, but I, th I found it actually quite thrilling in a business context. I really felt that um, business had never worked so efficiently mm. with such creativity, with so much energy, mm. and with a sense of actually collectively we can make things happen. I'm assuming that was the same experience for you. Absolutely. And, you know, it was intense and it was, um, but I wouldn't call it stressful, but it was intense. Mm but it was purposeful yeah. and everybody came together. I got, our board was phenomenal through that period. And if we, I was so grateful because we had amazing people on the board with a lot of diversity and that really enabled us to cut through things quickly. And we had a great management team led by Craig Tiley and we all worked together as one team. And we got all of our state associations working together with us. We made aligned decisions across the entire network. M most sports in Australia didn't have the same experience and so we, we're, we're forever grateful because the work that we'd done to build a one-team culture in tennis, you know, was really our friend right. when we went through such an intense period. And we were so purposeful and so driven by the substance and the facts um, about our decisions that it enabled us to make good decisions. And there's no question that the Australian Open is a brilliantly run organisation, uh, for sure. So obviously if you're in the airline business and it's 2020, things aren't going particularly well anywhere in the world – so why would you take on becoming the CEO of Virgin? Well, November two thousand November two twenty. <laughs> yeah, Did November twenty twenty. Twenty twenty. Yeah. Yeah. What's going there's, on? There's a good question. Exactly. Um, does she have rocks in her head or what? <laughs> um, look, I was just honoured to have the opportunity. To be honest, uh, I think Bank Capital were inspired in buying Virgin Australia, such a special brand and an amazing company. Yeah. Been Australia's most loved airline for 20 years at the time, 22 years now. And Virgin Australia had connected to its guests in a really special way emotionally. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard for airlines to do that. And so the nature of the brand and the culture and the people in the business gave Virgin Australia its second opportunity. Yeah, yeah. And so I just felt very honoured to have the opportunity to come in and help bring some clarity with the wisdom of experience having been through lots of similar situations to help us make a bunch of really good decisions quickly and build capability to do 
really hard things. Yeah, well, and the, some of those hard things I imagine, I mean, this is where it gets a little difficult, but um, COVID, of course, um, well, lots of consultants were employed during COVID, and one of the things they were employed to do was to find efficiencies. Uh, and so presumably that was an opportunity for, for all businesses, but not Virgin being one of those. Mm. And look, we had, we had the experience of going through administration, and so that gave us the ability to offload some things that just didn't make sense yeah. so so the hardest of things we just had the ability to zero everything out and start over and renegotiate a whole bunch of contracts during the, that protected experience yep. but then when we came out we took another 300 million dollars worth of cost out of the airline post administration yep. so then that's hard yeah and we did that over the last two years and, and the same time we were growing we we've grown the fleet by 60 percent We've gone from you know roughly three and a half thousand people to seven thousand people, and we've invested back in technology. We've invested back in customer experience. We've done that with real clarity about who we want to be. We're right. running our own race. We're not trying to, you know, be anybody else but ourselves. And we're going back to some of the amazing parts of our right. history, and you know, really going back to our roots. So, um, customer experience—it's core to who and what you are. Yeah. So uh, I presume you've zeroed in on that as the CEO of Virgin. Yeah. Yeah, most important thing. Okay, so we actually did that during diligence. Right. Okay. So we did customer research during diligence, which I don't think any other uh, bidder did, and that gave us real clarity on the sweet spot in the market okay. and how big it was and what it would take to deliver against that. And then there's a bunch of judgment calls that have to be made and what you do and what you don't do, and there's a lot of analysis that sits behind that. So mar market share um, is something that certainly in the old days when you and I were working on the ANSET, market share was something that you'd wake up every day and look at the market share. Is that, is that, is that really relevant or is it about simply about you know, flying profitably? Oh, look, I think it is really relevant because once you've chosen the spot that you want to play in the marketplace, you need to figure out how big do you need to be in order to nail that. Right. And because it's all about the experience you're creating for your guests, and part of the experience is the network that you have and the depth and breadth of that network. Mm -hmm. How many frequencies do you need to have in between Sydney and Melbourne kind of thing? Right. And so, and of course, everything's up in the air post-COVID. Who knows who wants to go where and and how frequently they want to go there because we're all different people. But didn't didn't we bounce back? So did Australians and their domestic flying, did we bounce back better than any other market in the world? Yes. <laughs> like it was but we also went through hardship that nobody oh, yeah. went through. We, we, uh, the rest of the world went through hardship, but it was different. We protected people, but we also locked off, off from each other. Right. And so then that sense of community and connectedness we lost. Mm. And so we've got it back now in a big way. It was interesting, um, a couple of conversations I've had with airlines. Um, you know, it was it was difficult at first, um, just getting back into the rhythm. And it was described to me as, we're just a bit out of practice. Um, and so how's the rhythm going now with Virgin? Look, it's pretty good. I'd say um, none of us fully factored in how hard it would be to go from low mode, yeah, pretty much being on idle, to high mode <laughs> overnight. And... It was really hard, by the way, to go from high mode to low mode because there's no playbook for that in aviation. I mean, airlines are meant to be in perpetual motion. Yes, exactly. And the aircraft's meant to be in perpetual motion. Yeah. So into then infinity. Into infinity. Right. And so, and there are, you know, there are all these markers along the way where you stop and do maintenance and rrr, but like that's all, you know, that's the playbook. Yeah. And so then when you go to low mode, that's a whole other thing that didn't have a playbook. And so we, we figured out how to do that. And then you think you're doing all the right things to be able to get back to high mode pretty quickly. And, and we had done a lot of really smart things, like our call centers were in great shape, our you know 
our people were ready for all the volume of baggage, the customer experience through the lounges, through the airport, all brilliant. Yep. But the the technical side of managing all of a sudden going to high with your frontline teams who have been working part-time basically. Mm, they're out of practice. And they're out of practice. Mm. We're, we're all out of practice. Yeah. And so and the airports and all of your suppliers, like we have a really delicate balance in our ecosystem around an airport, which is fundamental to an airline being able to push back on time and mm-hmm. get where it needs to go on time. Air traffic controllers, like the whole system had gone <laughs> into, know. you know, Slumber. sleepy hollow. <laughs> and and now all of a sudden we're back out and you know we're 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 bustling at the same at the same levels that we were before the music stopped. So, and so it was really hard, but we're back. Yeah, Melbourne, Sydney, um, third well pre-COVID, third busiest um, domestic in the air, world. In the world, yeah. Yeah. So where's it ranking now? Do you know? I don't know. That's a very good question. I think it would be right back up there. Yeah, probably. Um, and you know, we, we went from thirty-six flights a day, sort of thing, yeah. to six per week. Right. Right. How's that, right? That's not natural. <laughs> and so... <laughs> not if you're an airline. <laughs> not if you're an airline. And so so then going, springing back was, was harder than anybody expected it to be. But, you know, the performance levels in our business are right back where they were you know, before the pandemic. And we're working... We have to do different things to make that happen than we did before and then work hard to get productivity back um, over the next 12 months or so. I, I see you've launched a new campaign. We um, have. Wonderful. Bring on wonderful. Bring on wonderful. Mm. Um, too early, I suppose, to see how that's tracking. Well, the early the early data is phenomenal. Okay, I'll just say, like off the charts, outside our expectations, okay. phenomenal. Um, and uh, we were talking earlier um, about the the joys of the middle seat. Mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so tell us what you're doing about the middle seat. As uh, so, Freddie, this is the um, our, our panel operator. Here's Freddie. So, Freddie, you're going to find the sound, the, the beachside sounds, because we're going to go back to that in a minute. Um, and if you've got any questions or a question, then um, then we'll come back to you in a second. Um, so, tell us about the middle seat. Well, the middle seat is not the most favourite seat on board the plane, as it turns not out. Really? Like, yeah, it's surprising. <laughs> uh, the aisle seat and the window seat are much more popular than the middle seat, and something like one percent of people would. Proactively choose one percent. One percent. Thank you. You know, which I find a little bit surprising because in the middle seat, you know, you've got two people to talk to: exactly. one on the left and one on the right. If you don't like the person on the left, then you can, you know, strike up a really interesting conversation with the person on the right. Yeah. But only one percent of people would agree with that view, <laughs> and so, so we decided to do something about that and make it a bit of fun. Right. And so we created this lottery concept where you enter the lottery if you've got a middle seat, and every week we're drawing lottery winners, and they're really cool prizes like Virgin Voyages cruises and trips with, uh, you know, to follow your AFL team around the country Mm. and velocity points and and pub crawls and just really fun things. It's a good idea. And um, it did remind me a little of the fun that Ansett used to have, the the mid-90s fun that Ansett used to have. Um, So one more question on sort of airline etiquette. Now, if I'm on a short-haul flight and I'm in, you know, economy, short-haul flight economy, is it okay to recline my seat? Well, your seat reclines, so therefore it's okay to recline it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't reckon it is. I reckon there's a, like a two-hour, maybe two-hour, 15, you know, moratorium. After two and a half hours, okay, maybe that's fair enough. Well, I think it's down to personal opinion, right? But okay. if, if the seat's designed to be able to recline, then I think uh, you can't okay. get frustrated with somebody who reclines their seat. Fair enough, Jane. Now, listen, we're on the beach. Um, now, as we're on the beach, 
Freddie, have you got any questions for Jane or a question for Jane? Um, yeah, maybe one more about uh, uh, domestic etiquette. Um, I can't think of a better person to settle this question. Person in the middle seat. Uh, do they have right and fair claim to both of the armrests? Definitely not. What? <laughs> I like it. Good answer. So, Jane, as we listen to our the be- sounds of the beach, if I was on a beach with you, literally, I would ask this the following question. Are you enjoying yourself as the CEO and Managing Director of Virgin Australia? I reckon I have the best job in the country. Thanks very much, Jane. It's been fantastic speaking to you. Good luck with everything. Um, I know you're in a hurry. That's good news. You've got to go to another meeting. Cheers. Thanks, Russell. It's been fun.